I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. My guest today is Craig Davidson. Craig is a literary shapeshifter. He has written over a dozen books, literary fiction, poetry, suspense, horror, and a work of nonfiction, Precious Cargo, that was a hard-fought nominee for the 2018 edition of Canada Reads. Craig, welcome to Kobo. Thank you for having me, Michael. With each of our guests, we asked them to tell us about some books. The book that had the biggest influence on you in childhood, the book that was most formative for you as a writer, and then the current books, the ones that you're working on right now. And so along the way, we'll be talking about your book, Precious Cargo, My Year Driving the Kids on School Bus 3077. Let's start with your first book. Which was the first book that caught you as a kid? Well, the first book that I remember feeling a real emotional investment was Where the Red Fern Grows by Wilson Rawls. As to what did it, it's tough to say. I think there's a certain magic, especially with kids' books, can be fostered. I recently reread to my son, Charlotte's Web, which I'm not sure that it had the impact on him. He was He's five. And the idea of grappling with loss and with death, I think, obviously, and uh, but, but having some nobility about all that. And that's very much in Charlotte's Web, and it's very much in Wilson Rawls' book. And I just remember being overcome at the end of it as a, I'm going to guess I was eight or nine, and feeling like I'd never had that emotional response to any creative work up until then. I guess it was the first time that anything, be it a painting, be it a a movie, be it anything, struck that chord and made me have that kind of emotional upheaval, which probably was a formative event, both obviously in my life, but in my evolving life as wanting to become a writer myself and, and maybe at my best aspire towards conjuring those kind of emotions in other people. Authors like Wilson Rawls, there is an enormous skill, obviously, in being able to write with that kind of tenderness and thoughtfulness and being able to put yourself, I mean, this is one thing that I've discovered kind of as a writer and trying to write from a kid's perspective, even retroactively as, as an adult looking back over, you know, say a summer that you had as a child. I mean, kids obviously look at the world in a fundamentally different way than we do as adults. And how that gets lost, if it gets hammered out of us, I don't know how it erodes, but we do lose it. And so when a writer has the ability, I guess, to go back and access their own childhood and their friends, and it's a skill that you know when you're getting it and it's pure. And I think as a kid reading it, you can recognize it too, because you think, oh, I, I totally get this and I totally feel this. As a writer, are there things that you can show through a young person's eyes that are just harder to show through the eyes of an adult? I very much think so, Michael. I also think like... I think, as you said in your introduction, for me specifically, I've written quite a few books now. And I guess it's like any other career or any other life path. You come to realize what you're good at. You come to realize the things that maybe you don't quite have the facility for or that maybe you could develop, but maybe that's not your natural talent stream. And I've discovered more and more writing from a kid's perspective is it allows me as a writer. I've recognized it myself as a writer and myself actually as a human being am quite hard on my sleeve. There are certain adult writers who are very good at conjuring an emotion in a distant way and kind of putting a distance there. And, and there's, there's a beauty there and there's a restraint. I think that's something. 
I have discovered that I'm not a particularly adept at restraint. So the thing is, when you're writing from a child's perspective, they're not even really aware yet of that restraint necessarily. So they can, if you are as close as you can get to them in a narrative sense from being a writer, you can approach these emotions in a more, I don't know, a straightforward kind of a way, you know what I mean? And you can ideally get them across in a way that feels compelling to a reader, but also feels honest and also feels genuine in that, yeah, this is the way that kids think. And I think that's sometimes where some writers get in trouble if they come from that kind of other school of writing, of having a real restraint, and they're really great at that. But then I think they may, they have a difficulty kind of being as open as children sometimes are. So I'm not sure if that answered your question necessarily, but I do think you can write about certain things. And I do think your skills as a writer, you know, if you have a difficult time showing a, a lot of emotional restraint sometimes, or, or getting your point across in a way that, that would seem from an adult narrator to be, you know, might, might be difficult or difficult to interpret for a reader. Sometimes when you put those same emotions, the baldness of them in a child, it feels resonant and it feels right. There's a clarity and there's no muddiness or passiveness to it. Those are things that come with adulthood and, and, and they're re- reasonable and necessary for adulthood. But as a kid, why? <laughs> there's a boy that shows up in a few of your books, you know, a funny kid, a kid who isn't that much into sports, but you know, who loves books and has this fantastically complex inner life. Right. How much of this has been hauled in from early life in St. Right. Catharines? Right. A great deal of it, obviously. I mean, people will ask, I'm sure any writer, where his or her ideas come from or characters come from. And my answer will vacillate. But usually it's that, you know, I'm a bit of a magpie, a raven. You're getting all these baubles to put your nest together of your book or of your character. And a lot of those are drawn from real life, obviously, your own experiences as as a child, for example, or or your friends. And then so, some of them are obviously things that you just, you make up and you, you kind of add, you know, that's the fictional straw. And I guess if you do it right, you've braided a nest together so that readers can't really tell what's what. I mean, ideally, maybe in my case, I hope that they get a sense that like, oh, this is a very personal narrative. And that there's probably something here where the author has investigated his own past and events in it and kind of pulled them forward or maybe changed them a little bit, manipulated them. But there's an an essential honesty, I guess, here or truth. And that's true because I've, I've always said like... When I first started writing, I just thought you had to make everything up. I thought that was like a rule of of writer's craft or how can you, I mean, it's fiction, right? You have to make up everything. You know, and then you realize, obviously, that no, um, I think sometimes some of the, the scenes that I've written, for example, that seem to resonate most with readers are the ones that ultimately, if they ask me about it, I'll say, well, that, that wasn't too far from real life. And the most of the legwork I did with those scenes is going back into my own memory and investigating them as closely as I can. And whatever came out of them, I tried to put on the page as almost as verbatim emotionally as I could. Again, talking about going back to your childhood, it can't quite be the same, right? And memory is a very strange and tricky thing. Talking about that ability to write from through a a child's eyes, Mm -hmm. tell me a bit about the book that helped make you think about becoming a writer or being a writer. The most fundamentally important writer to me, period, is Stephen King. And that would be, again, same with Wilson Rawls. If you go back to a lot of kids who are now adults from the 80s and 90s, late 70s, they would probably say the same. I mean, I would say for our generation, 
for me and the people that I grew up with, it really was Stephen King. He just seemed to be everywhere and omnipresent. And I came to his books at a very young age. My parents were, they were just happy to see me reading. I was doing it very young and I think they were just happy to see me reading and they certainly knew enough about Stephen King. He was out there in the landscape enough that they would know that these were not kids' books. But at the same point, I guess they trusted me or were happy enough to see me with my nose stuck in a book all the time that they weren't really all that. They didn't care so much what the material was necessarily. And so as such, he made this enormous impact on me. And I probably read It, which is the book I think that top desert island book. If you drop me on a desert island, it would be the one that I'd say drop that with me in a canteen and whatever else, some provisions and see how long I last. Because again, it's same with Rawls. He captures childhood in a way that to my reading has rarely been matched. You know, like I'm a big horror guy and I, that's my first love. And, and it, it, I'm sure, I guess if it's your first love, it will be your always love in a way. And I love, say, Clive Barker or um, Dean Koontz or Anne Rice. But if you take, say, Clyde Barker, you know, you will remember the Baroqueness of his sentences. You will remember the lushness of his imagination and the fact that he is kind of a genius without equal, without peer. But yet apart from maybe Harry D'Amour, I don't remember any of his characters. You know what I mean? Whereas like with Stephen King and with it especially, I know all those characters, you know? They felt like they got inside of me and they, they grew up inside of me as I grew up. And so taking aside the crazy clown and all the extraneous stuff, I wouldn't say extraneous stuff, it's very important to the narrative of that book. What I remember most is the kids. And then of course, when they're adults as well, you can, you can see the touchstones of, of who they were as kids reflecting in how, who they were as adults. You mentioned horror as being important to you. Let's talk for a minute about Patrick Latuska and uh, and right, Cutter. Right, Cutter, sure. Because you have two literary alter egos. Um, <laughs> right. And, uh, so tell me about these two other sort of streams of fiction that you have coming in. The story behind Patrick was I wrote this book many years ago. I guess I was in my, I was in my mid-20s at that point. The pseudonym, they both have their own, you know, kind of histories behind the names themselves. But I was staying at home one time. I was back home from university, I guess. And my mom came home and she had, uh, I love my mom, but she's a bit of a snoop and it's her house. So I guess she's right to do that. She looked at my computer, my laptop, and she saw this story and she read a little bit of it. And she just said, (laughs) I'm glad you're writing, Craig, but this cannot come out under the good Davidson name, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. And you know, the truth is, you know, the Davidsons are a lovely, lovely, but you know, we're not like rum runners and knaves or anything like that, but we're not, I don't think any of the Davidsons would have had any problem to have a book come out under, under the Davidson name. But to suit my mother's whims, I came up with a a pen name and that book came out under that name. But I mean, I'd always been a horror writer. So I wrote a story collection that ended up becoming Rust and Bone, which was my first book published under my own name. And that took me off on a, you know, on a perfectly lovely um, journey of of writing under that name. But then later on, I I remember I was at the ROM uh, with my to-be wife uh, when we first moved here to the city about six years ago. And um, the ROM always has those special exhibits that come and go. So the one at that point was uh, water, all the ways in which we use water and as a, as a species. And, and there was this little alcove off to the side, not very, very similar to the one we're at now, more dark, but you know, kind of paneled in dark tones. And there was a little video playing and it was, it was about tapeworms, you know, and like very close up a tapeworm I noticed is a very intriguing and somewhat beautiful creature. 
if you get it close enough to anything, almost at the cellular level, we all become beautiful uh, and and strange, more strange for that beautifulness to a degree. So I was just intrigued by this. And the way my mind works is it took kind of a dark bend. And I wrote this book called The Troop. And I sent it to my agent expecting that he would um, say, I, I got nothing for you. <laughs> uh, maybe you sub- submit this yourself somewhere. But he came back and he said, actually, this is it's a thriller, basically, and, 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 and it's good. And so he went out with it. And that's allowed me to kind of make a late break back towards, again, my first love of horror, which um, long may I be able to pursue it. And so the second pass through horror right. has been what brought Nick Cutter. Uh, yes. Uh, okay. Patrick had to die so that Nick could live. <laughs> got it. <laughs> You immerse yourself in writing, it seems. For The Fighter, which was published in 2008, you trained as a boxer. That's right. You went on steroids. That's you, right as well. You fought a couple of matches. I did that. But the final product of that book, like like all of your other books to date, had been fiction. What made you decide to cross over and write a memoir with Precious Cargo? I feel like, some, you know, I'm sure, I know you have talked to um, many, many writers, and uh, I guess all of us have different vectors to which we, you know, the story of this book or the story of that book or the, ultimately the story of a career. Mine has been much more catch-as-catch-can and random and falling into things and kind of struggling through them potentially and, and finding some value maybe in them. In this, I, sorry, I wasn't really struggling through it at all or finding any value. It was, it was an opportunity that came to me at a time when I was just bereft, basically. You know, I had gone through, you mentioned the fighter and all those things that I went through with the fighter. So I was living in Calgary after that, and nobody was interested in publishing the next book that I had written, which remains unpublished. And I was just struggling for work, as you do. And I ended up driving a bus, went through training for it, expected I was gonna be driving a big bus. Turns out I got a, a route for children with special needs. Anyone who's been in what I guess they call the the creative industries has had that selection of random jobs. Mm -hmm. And it's something that you actually encapsulate beautifully in the book. (laughs) I won't spoil it for anyone. But how quickly did you realize that this wasn't just going to be a job, that you were now a player in in some very interesting people's lives? I would say, you know, to be honest, it was that first day. You know, by the time they were all on the bus and, and, and some of them knew each other from before and um, I had some, some pre-existing knowledge of Jake's circumstance. And so we were talking, you know, there were, and I know you've had this, Michael, too. We all have it. We're fortunate we have it a couple of times in our life. But you become part of a group that, whether it's a work group, whether it's a group of friends, whether it's something more like this that came together kind of organically out of nowhere, everybody seems to abet everybody else. Everybody seems to strengthen everybody else. And it's like... And everybody is so necessary. It's sort of like the spokes on a wheel. And if you took one of those spokes away, it wouldn't, it would run out of true. It wouldn't work properly. But the fact that everything is there, it just all seems to work. And it's almost this organic feeling of like, wow, there's just something really powerful here to me, obviously. And I I can't, I can't take out the fact that I was at a point in my life where I was looking for something like that anyways, but I don't think I manufactured it. I don't think it's really possible to manufacture something if it's not there. So, I mean, it really was immediate. And then, and then you're running into, as you said, I've never written a, a memoir before. I've certainly written nonfiction in terms of magazine pieces and stuff, but never a long, never a book length project. And so you run into a lot of things that I, that I did in that book, which is these aren't fictional characters. These are, these are people, they have lives, they have families, and there's a burden of um, responsibility and consideration and compassion that you know, was, was kind of waters that we had to swim through and in order to make the book and to have the book come out. But we did those things and everybody's pleased. So that's the best thing. <laughs> there is 
a book within a book woven through Precious Carter. Mm -hmm. What's the role of the Seekers? I'm not sure the Seekers really works. I've heard some people say they just didn't get why it was there. Obviously, me and my editor spoke about it quite a bit because initially I'd done a lot of interviews with doctors, researchers, people who were working on the conditions that affected the kids on the bus. But it was decided that those kind of took readers too far out of the narrative. And so we, I came up with this, you know, basically I said, I'd written this book. I've written this book. Uh, shortly after driving those kids. And it's really based on those kids. You know, the kids are the characters in the book. And the reason why I felt so compelled to write it, because at the time I wasn't sure I was ever going to do anything with that experience, but it felt so meaningful to me. At that point, it felt like a fictionalization kind of, because the kids were always telling stories. And in those stories, as it is with kids, as it is with my own five-year-old, they're always the heroes. You know, they're always doing the right thing and they're always the strongest and they're always the best. And that's exactly how it was with those kids. But it was even more, to me, more compelling because, say, Jake, who was in a wheelchair, his heroes always had telekinesis. Their minds were absolutely not only normal, they were, they were super normal. They were able to, like, move things. And, and you know, sort of these other kids would, would have some, the manifestations of their... Oliver, you know, he had low muscle tone. That was part of what Fragile X, how it affects the body. So his characters were, of course, always super strong. So that was it. These Seekers, these five kids in this kind of novel that I wrote, The Seekers, which is kind of a fantasy sci-fi book, they were all those kids. And it felt so right to me to be writing this book where the kids were the heroes because that's what they were in their own stories and that's what they are in my head. And I think any writer will tell you that the strongest stories usually that they write are the ones that are closest to their heart and spring from, as we spoke about before, kind of real life. You use a phrase hopeful truths. Are those stories that you just described their hopeful truths? I think so. that was the point of it. You're absolutely, Michael. And, and it was my own hopeful truth too. You know what I mean? I, and a hopeful truth is some, whatever you want, a mileage you want to get out of a phrase like that is there are also people who've read the book and they, they ask for things almost that are just impossible for me to give. Like, I wish Jake had spoken to that girl in social studies that he was pining over, or I wish Gavin would be able to do, would speak it's like, well, I mean, I guess I wish that too. And I guess their parents wish that, but it's like, that's not true. So you're saddled between like giving readers what they want in a fictional way, which if it was a fictional book, I'd give it to you. Maybe. I mean, if that was my outlook and that's, you know, what I wanted to convey, but I couldn't do that. You know, I, I wanted those things too. I want things for myself. We all want things for ourselves and the people that we love and care for. We can't necessarily give that to them. I can't give that to ourselves as much as we might want to. So it's not like those readers were disappointed. It's just like that's part of it too. A part of a hopeful truth is that like we can always aspire to it and we can always hope towards it. But we also have to accept, I think, the life that we have. Not just, you know, uh, I accept the life I have. Because I don't think that's what any of those kids were like. And I don't think that's what I'm like. It's always working towards something, aspiring towards whatever you aspire towards, but also accepting the parameters of your life as they are. I'm holding out for telekinesis. Yeah, I think, <laughs> me too. Can you talk a little bit about the next book you have coming out in August of 2018? We're back in Cataract City. Yeah, that's right. It's a return to Cataract City. Well, it's a shorter book because it was initially part of a short story collection and uh, similar to Rest and Bone. At the end of Rest and Bone, there's kind of a novella. And this started out as a novella. But I ended up doing a PhD in creative writing. And a part of that is you write a novel, you're supposed to write a, and I thought, well, I was doing, I'm going to write a book anyway, so maybe I'll try and get a PhD out of this whole deal too. In the process of working with the, those supervisors, 
it became longer. And so they decided that it would really be best to bring it out as its own thing. Because suddenly when you put like a 50,000 word book out or novella, it's not a novella anymore, it's a short novel and, you know, some short stories, it may not serve it right. It may not serve either right. So they said, let's just do this on our own. And I think you know too, short books are great now. Like there's a lot of people who, and I do too, I love a, like a short 50,000 word book. Like I just finished reading Ian Reed's Foe. I think it comes out the same day as the Saturday Night Ghost Club, which is my book, which is not a good... <laughs> I mean, I love Ian Reed. That's a thing, and it's such a good book. So in any case, his is about 50,000 words. Mine is about 50,000 words. Very different books. Mine is about, again, as you said, Michael, it takes place in Cataract City. It's basically a, a, a summer where a boy you know, coming of age narrative, a boy's growing up. He has a favorite uncle who is into the occult and spiritualism, and he owns a shop at the top of Clifton Hill called the Occultorium. And, you know, has all the kind of, he has a, he has a phone in the back that's called the bat phone that comes in with, he has a conspiracy network around him. So he's got all sorts of crazy kind of a word that comes in over the bat phone about paranormal activity in different sectors of the world. But really it mainly primarily deals with memory, how memory is an incredibly tricky thing and how if an event that happens in our past, we can try and bury it because maybe we want to or maybe it's psychological repercussions are too grim and we can't face it. But in the end, those kind of lonely voices in the static come hungering out and they kind of make you reclaim your past again. So that's kind of, I think there's an undercurrent there. The surface, ideally, is just a fun, enjoyable coming-of-age novel, but there is kind of a Nick Cutter-esque <laughs> dark undercurrent <laughs> seething, seething through it. I managed to get my hands on it a few days ago. It comes out in August of 2018. And, yes. Uh, I think it's going to be fantastic. Saturday Night Ghost Club. Craig Davison, thank you so much. Well, for thank here. you so much, Michael. I appreciate uh, being able to come in. That's it for this episode of Kobo in Conversation, a podcast about books and the authors who write them. To discover the books you just heard about or to follow us, please visit www.kobo.com conversation. This podcast is produced at the Kobo Audiobook Studios here in Liberty Village in Toronto, Ontario, Canada.